Hello and welcome to this special Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. While we were at Innovation Forum's Business and Climate Action on Scope 3 Missions conference recently, my colleague B. Stevenson and I were delighted to speak with a number of the expert panellists and delegates attending the event. Coming up now are insights and comment from Adam Tarr, Director Ingredient and former Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of State for Agriculture, Ashley Allen, Chief Sustainability Officer at Oatly, Terran Lawrence, Chief Sustainability Officer for Rabobank North America, Saif Hamid, CEO of Altruistic, Ashley Burkett, Chief Scientific Officer, Germany Ventures, and Jeff Brighty, Global Head of Sustainability at Mura Technology. I'm with Adam Tarr, he was with the Invariant Group and he was a former staffer in Congress. Welcome Adam. Good to be here. You were involved in the work for the Inflation Reduction Act. Perhaps give us a little bit of insight as to what it was designed to achieve. Well, at the outset, the Inflation Reduction Act was designed to touch on a number of priorities of the Democratic Party. It was a sprawling bill that probably touched all sectors of the economy. At the end of the day, it ended up being something much more modest but significant. A comprehensive piece of climate legislation that was really designed to clean up the electric power sector and to put the United States on a path towards meeting our Paris Accord Agreement. And specifically then for business, what were the provisions that were included? This is not a regulatory bill, right? This isn't a regulatory scheme. It is an incentive-based program, primarily designed for business, right? You have a variety of tax credits in play, production tax credits, investment tax credits, policies that were designed to really boost domestic American manufacturing of clean energy technologies and the deployment of those technologies. That's probably a little more than half of the bill, and then the remainder would be grants, loans, direct spending on clean energy technologies. I mean, it's early days still, but how are you seeing it playing out? Is it successfully rolling out, do you think? It is successfully rolling out to the extent that it's rolled out. This is a bill, the peculiar nature of the legislation It was crammed through a unique parliamentary procedure just given how closely government was divided in the narrow majority that Democrats had in the Senate, which means that you're really limited to spending and you're limited to doing it over sort of a 10-year window. So the bill doesn't say, hey, here's $360 million, go spend it. In fact, it's sort of spread out over time. And so you see tax incentives in the nuclear power space, in the biofuel space, the rules are still being developed by the Treasury Department, right? And so we won't actually even know who qualifies, how they qualify, or what uptake is like until 2025, 2026. And do you think a consensus has developed around you know, its longevity? I mean, is it here to stay, or is there potential for being rolled back as we go forward? A little bit of both. Like I said, this is a bill that looks out over the next 10 years. And in fact, The Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, which estimate the impacts of this legislation, they see the biggest impacts, the biggest spending occurring in 2031. So will Congress tweak these laws between now and then? Most likely. I don't see a full-scale rollback. You know, these brought together folks from the business sector here. When this legislation was passed, it was touted by environmentalists as, as, as a monumental piece of legislation. So there's broad support for these policies. I don't see a full rollback but certainly you could see some tweaks between now and you know, nine years from now. Yeah, I mean, business likes consistency. 100%. So there's going to be clearly, and we've heard some voices reflecting that today, that say, oh, no, this is the way we are going, this is the direction of travel, and it be very difficult to pull it back and change direction entirely. I mean, how do you see things panning out within, over the next, say, five years? You know, I mentioned a little bit on the panel, we've got a farm bill to be written, right? So over the next two years, you're going to see 
Congress take a look at the climate incentives and the Inflation Reduction Act and say, hey, do we want to modify these a little bit? And then, again, hopefully, Treasury gets these rules out on time and we see significant uptake and deployment of some of these technologies between now and five years from now. Well, let's see. Uh, Adam Tarr, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm here with Ashley Adam from Oatly. We've been talking about product carbon footprinting. So if you could just give like an overview of what your vision and approach to that is at Oatly. Oatly's been doing product carbon footprinting, in fact, actually putting the carbon footprint either on the pack or on our website for a number of years, starting in around 2019 in Europe. And we have it on over 140 of our products. We have that information. Our approach is really to be as transparent as possible and really share with consumers this magical number and really spark that conversation of what does it mean? What is the climate impact of things that I eat and drink and, and purchase on a daily basis? And that that kind of conversation can spark a new curiosity and, and interest in learning more. You're one of quite few brands who are doing this. What would you say is the point in doing it if other brands aren't doing it for a point of comparison? I think it's something that is absolutely growing in popularity and growing in interest. You know, for a long time, people have wanted to have a growing understanding of the nutrition content of their food, the nutrients, you know, looking at the calories and the carbohydrates and things like that. And to me, this is one more data piece that people are now starting to get interested in when it comes to the things that they eat and drink and something that they actually should be interested in. By sharing this information, I think we can start to grow this movement or grow this culture of people using carbon impact as a way to help move and shift their decisions as consumers. And what would you say to companies or leaders who might be afraid of backlash or undermining their green claims? One of Oatly's mottos is to be fearless, in fact is to be effing fearless. <laughs> That to me is I think where companies have to be in this space because none of us have perfect information. There's a lot of learning left to be done, but we have to put the information out there. We have to start this conversation and that's the only way that we can learn and grow. If we just wait until everything is completely known and completely perfect, how on earth are we going to solve a big global challenge like climate change? It's just not gonna happen. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm joined by Taryn Lawrence who's Chief Sustainability Officer for North America at Rabobank. Welcome. Thank you so much. We were talking just now about integrated climate and nature disclosures. How do you see the finance sector's requirements changing on this? I think you've seen the uptick in carbon and climate risk. We, as a bank committed to that zero banking alliance, like many of our peers here in the United States, we have to disclose our operational and financed emissions. What's challenging about that is the data quality. I think something shared at this conference that everyone is struggling with is primary data. So we're going directly to the source to try to up-level the quality of our data to have better informed decision-making. Everything we've learned through the carbon process, we can apply to the nature process as it's starting to uptick. I mean, it felt that the mood of the room was that, well, look, we haven't got even close to getting carbon started out, and now we're going to nature as well. Yeah, I think there's always a risk of fracturing your focus. I'm a strong proponent, having a startup background, of narrow focus, saying no to things that might be distracting from your core. When it comes to something as important as nature, though, we can't sit till everything is perfect on carbon to start. But what I think we need to do is not rely on existing teams to expand and take on new, really critical pieces. We have to hire, we have to train, we have to upscale our employees. So what are the specific data points that you're seeing or that you're seeing the sector now requiring of business? Well, emissions for corporate clients and now getting down into the farmer and producer level will be really important. 
Beyond that, as a bank, we ask all about our, the social practices, biodiversity, deforestation. We seek a lot of information around our clients to make informed decisions about what they're doing, how they are transitioning, and how we can support that transition. Something that came out in the conference session we were involved in was uh, talking about getting the incentives right so that all stakeholders are comfortable to share data. Yeah. How do we do that? Everyone wants the reduction. No one wants to pay for it. I think the financial institutions in the room have to incentivize these behaviors that we see as so critical to the transition, whether that is through a reduced cost of capital, whether that's through non-monetary incentives. So for example, potentially I could give some sort of unit economic value when I ask for carbon data. There has to be a give back in lieu of local legislation and regulation. And it's great to see the finance sector engaging these issues now. And that's obviously the next step. All these projects, these innovations that we've been talking about require financing. Good to see we're getting there. Thanks very much, Taryn from Rabobank. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm joined by Seth Mead from Altruistic. Welcome back. Thanks, Ian. Pleased to be here. We talked about how leading companies are performing against their climate targets. What are you seeing in this space? How are companies performing now? It's actually quite hard to say, Ian. I think we're seeing a lot of moving goalposts. A couple of factors at play there. One is changing standards and methodologies, so flag uh, being an obvious one for sectors affected by that. Another is changes in emissions factors, which is often beyond the control of the company. And a final one is changes in the underlying data that companies are using. So I actually feel the jury is out on whether there's real meaningful progress, especially if you include scope one, two, and three. I'm seeing everything from 2% up, 2% down, frankly. Yeah, we talked about this earlier in the year, but yesterday we were talking about flag and it's still the element of the moving goalposts that people can get very frustrated by, the having to continually get the internal buy-in on the same issues they feel. What are good tools and technologies to help? What do they look like, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a few principles that we always recommend companies look for. One is digitization. So you actually need to try and just digitize as much of your data as possible. There's still a lot of emissions relevant data sitting in disparate systems. Much of it is very analog, receipts, JPEGs, PDFs. And actually getting that into a structure or a database or a data lake where you can kind of work with it is the first piece. The second is you want to be able to curate that data. So I mean, tag that data appropriately. If you bought potatoes, which year, what type, where from, what weight, there's a number of classifications that you need to start associating with the data that you're aggregating. And then finally, I would think about actual usability. What are you gonna be doing with this data? What are the use cases? Often we start with the front end visualization first whereas that's often the easiest part to bring in, actually curating and logging the data and associating it with specific parts of the business, specific activities, is the most important place to start. That's the tricky bit, isn't it? Incorporating emissions data into decision-making across different functions is a real challenge. How are you seeing that developing right now? What we're seeing is most of our customers, for example, are looking for granularity, where initially they would be aggregating data at a high level, treating, let's say, categories of purchases where they're running the calculations on maybe 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 line items of data, which is an aggregation of many subcategories of data, if you will. And we're seeing more companies now move towards much larger scale processing, where they have millions of lines of data being calculated. They're running calculations on the underlying raw data. Think in terms of logistics, you could aggregate up to trip type and run a calculation on a trip type, or you could have each individual trip be its own calculation and then aggregate upwards. We're seeing more of the latter. It's clearly obviously for companies, they need to be able to know how they're doing, particularly performing against their peers. 
What advice do you give to companies about benchmarking so they get and they know where they are in terms of their performance versus their peers' performance? I would actually benchmark for practice rather than quantitative numbers at this point. What I mean by that is if everyone else's emissions numbers are wrong, there's no point you comparing against that. And if everyone is using different methodologies, there's no point running a comparison. What you can actually benchmark is how are you going about your, let's say, uh, emissions journey. Let me give an example. Most companies that we know are still applying a very small set of unique emissions factors across a very large base of unique purchases. They might be buying 100,000 unique purchases, ingredients, materials across the world, and they might only be using two or 3,000 unique emissions factors. That percentage is problematic. You can get that percentage up. You can start applying 10, 15% of unique emissions factors to your calculations. That's already a significant practice improvement versus what others are doing in your space. And that's a more important metric actually to look for versus just is your emissions higher or lower than a peer in your industry. It is always about the journey, isn't it? Uh, Seif Hamid, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Give us a quick intro to yourself and your work. Okay. My name is Ashley Burkhart, and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Germany Adventures which is a venture capital firm that impact invests in the food and ag space. I also serve as an associate in the Environment and Natural Resources program at Harvard Kennedy School, part of the Belfer Center, where I've led some study groups and events on innovation investment in, in regenerative agriculture. And then lastly, my background is I'm a medical doctor. It's a little unusual for people in this space. Um, I practice as a GI liver pathologist and have grant-funded research, so I've been looking at guts and butts for over a decade. Part of the reason I got interested in this space is the healthcare system wasn't paying enough attention to food and the food system wasn't paying enough attention to health. We've been talking just now about carbon markets, particularly the evolution of the voluntary carbon markets, uh, the reduction projects and the removal projects. Now I know you're focusing very much on nature-based carbon removal projects. Talk to us a bit about those, what you're seeing developing and how they can best scale. First of all, a lot of people don't realise this, but only 5% of our offsets go to removal or sequestration or drawdown, you can use many different terms for it. And I think a really helpful metric to understand why this is really important is many times we're always talking about the 1.5 degree Celsius metric, but that's confusing when it comes to drawdown. If you start thinking about it, parts per million, before the Industrial Revolution, we had 280 parts per million. Now, the parts per million of carbon dioxide in our air is 421, and scientists believe that 350 is our safe place. With that in mind, if you start thinking about just reducing emissions isn't going to help with reversing our anthropogenic issues. So that's where we have to focus on drawdown. Now, there are industrial solutions and there are nature-based solutions. When we think of industrial solutions, the one that usually comes to people's mind is direct air capture. It's very measurable, which is great as an industrial solution, but it's just not very scalable, and there aren't any of these other benefits that I'm going to talk about with a nature-based solution. Nature-based solution, again, we have a lot of different options, such as afforestation, sinking, kelp, biochar, but the most scalable and the one that I'm most interested in and I think would have the biggest impact is soil health. The reason is, is uh, for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, you actually lock away 10 more tons of carbon and 20,000 more gallons of water. Soil is home to 25% of the world's biodiversity. So you're actually dialing back on your water crisis, your biodiversity crisis, your climate crisis. But it also has all of these other benefits, which we need to focus on, such as improving resilience, improving farmer profits because they have less input costs and, again, eventually yield. And lastly, there's evidence of nutrient 
density, higher nutrient density among food. There's some emerging evidence. So with all of these in mind, you would think, well, then why are we not adopting this? And there are real challenges. One of the things I want to bring up is that 93% of farmers know about carbon farming, but only 3% are engaging. Is that in the U.S. or worldwide? That statistic, I believe, is in the U.S. Just to point out, though, on a worldwide scale, if we could actually get this to scale, a UN scientist did model that if you could get 50% of farmers to increase their soil organic matter by 1%, that would be enough to draw down 31 gigatons of carbon, which is three times the amount of the transportation sector. It's really important to be targeting this audience. The question is, why are they not engaging? And this is where we can focus on looking at the challenges, but then also looking at them as opportunities. How do you turn this into a market? Because that's the solution that farmers want. They need to see the benefits for them financially. So how do we turn all this into a market? First of all, our market already has some challenges to it. When you just look at carbon markets in general, there's a lot of distrust among farmers. It requires permanence, which makes sense. That should be the case when it comes to a carbon market, but that means a lot of times they have to sign contracts that are long-term, which makes them uncomfortable. There are now different options. For example, soil organic matter has been the focus. Now there's some looking at soil inorganic matter where you could actually drive a better market price and it sinks the carbon permanently for like thousands of years. The price is now too low to incentivize farmers. That's an issue. And to be honest with you, you have to kind of change the narrative because it can't be about climate change. They're more interested in land stewardship and profits. And so how do you change that narrative into this is about your profit, this is about your land stewardship. And then specifically, there's what I would identify as four obstacles that pertain specifically to farmers in general. One is financial. It's costly to change your practices. And so we need both policy and we need innovation and investment that help front load the farmer with the capital to be able to move in this direction and also de-risk the whole thing. And this would include putting language into Title V of the Farm Bill on credit, but again, also having new enterprise models in the private sector. It includes cultural, technical, educational. That's a really big one. So, you know, how do you communicate this among the small communities of farmers who all talk among themselves. Again, on the policy side, this is making more robust, robust statements for the Farm Bill that would help the USDA enable more education and technical support, but also it's the private sector. There are companies like Klim, there are companies like Continuum Ag and Andes Ag that are helping farmers actually like engage in these markets. Lastly, you, there's policies that impact barriers, so we have to think about what policies are doing that. Then the supply chain. A lot of times people don't think about that, but we don't have the supply chain infrastructure to allow for regenerative ag to flourish, and so that also has to be dealt with simultaneously in order for them to engage in these carbon markets. Certainly seems to be huge potential here. Yeah. Can you see how it all develops? Perhaps we can talk about it again next year. But for now, Ashley, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. I'm joined by Jeff Brighty, who's the Global Head of Sustainability at Mura Technology. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. We were talking about collaboration and competition yesterday. How are you seeing collaboration developing around the sustainability? Well, for us, it's hugely important. We're part of this something called a circular economy. We're trying to join up the disparate ends of the linear economy of take, make, use and dispose. Uh, collaboration both with our supply chain from the point of view of the waste materials and then trying to connect that process then to our off-takers is proving really important for us because we want to make sure that the connection between the waste industry and the pet chems is actually happening probably for the first time. Pet chems can't take waste. We're that interlocutor that's taking that waste material and transferring it to them. 
More importantly, that material then comes around the circular economy and will come back by the waste stream. So for us, the whole value chain has to be aligned to make this whole thing work. Yeah, it does feel that we're seeing now real B2B cooperation and collaboration around innovation, finding new products, new ideas. What do you think's prompted that? Is this the realization that we can do it on your own? I think a few years ago, if I was talking to my customer's customer, that would be the end of my working relationship with my customer. But I think the recognition now, particularly things like scope three, where that material that we're passing down the line, it's my scope three, someone else's scope three, and it's gonna come back round again. So we have to understand really where our material flow is going and what impacts and what decisions others are making around that value chain when it comes to or comes back to us, that we're able to process it, for example. So if they design their products differently, that could be a massive impact for us. But also we don't want to be giving somebody too high a carbon footprint because it might throw their ESG accounting out. We all have to be aligned and working together to make this thing work. Tell us a little bit about what Tamir Technology does. We are an advanced recycler and we take waste plastics and we convert that into uh, premium quality oils through a process called hydrothermal liquefaction. It's a supercritical water process. And that recycling generates these oils which will go back into a pet chem environment as a feedstock for future materials. So particularly plastics, but it's part of our product range also goes into road making, so a bitumen binder for asphalt. Clearly you're then, as you say, needing to develop the collaboration that you have. What is next for you guys? What are you doing looking at now? Key thing for us is get to scale. In the EU, we're burning 12 million tonnes of plastic per annum. We want to stop that from happening. It's very polluting. It's clearly adding a lot of carbon to the environment and we're losing the resource. Through our process, what we're able to do is capture that resource, keep it in circulation, not emit it to the environment, and also stop things like plastic pollution, which we know has been so totemic over the last few years. The understanding that plastic does a great job in terms of protecting shelf life for food, giving durability to products, protecting them in transit, that's really important. Medical grade as well in terms of health, but we have to keep that material in circulation. It cannot be just thrown away. This is a valuable resource, and we also don't want it to be driving climate change. Yeah, I mean, plastic does a great job in many respects. The challenge, as you say, is to keep it out of the environment at the end and to maintain and find the value of that because plastic is something that simply has not been valued in the past. No, it's not. And it, it is a, an engineered product. Packaging is strongly engineered to do a job, driven by regulation, driven by you know, expectations of customers. But once the packaging's been thrown away, that's the end of life. But huge amounts of effort has gone into make that. What we can do is we can keep that material in circulation and also regenerate material that might still be in use, but may have, for some reason, you know, not able to be performed, cannot be extruded or whatever. So we can sustain the life of that carbon and basically recycle 90 plus percent of that material back into a valuable product. Well, it's great to see these solutions emerging. Jeff from Amir Technology, thank you very much. Very welcome. Brilliant. It was a great pleasure to speak to everyone and my thanks to them all for taking the time to offer their comments. For now though, goodbye.